Uh, I've actually preached on this uh, passage once before, but there is so much stuff here. I was analyzing the two sermons, and there's somewhere between 80 and 90 percent, somewhere probably around 85 percent overlap, uh, uh, not overlap, that's new, okay, about 15 percent probably that is uh, not new, and the point is God has made even the genealogies of the Scripture to sing forth His praises and His triumph and His redemptive purposes. They're lovely. They're wonderful. Matthew chapter 1. Hear the Word of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Solomon. Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram, Joram begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah, Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon, and after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiud, Abiud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Akim, Akim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Matan, Matan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Father, you have told us that we must live by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. That is our desire. That is our glory. We come to you this morning desiring not only to be built up in the most holy faith, but to glorify you in our worship and our responses to these scriptures. We love you, and we continue to commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, today we're beginning a series of sermons in the life of David, and we'll be most of these sermons looking into the books of First and Second Samuel, uh, perhaps uh, dipping into a psalm here and there and uh, into some of the prophets. But today I wanted to look at the incredible line of David because it deals with a subject that I've really not touched on very much before, and it's covenant succession. We've got 2,000 years of covenant succession that a lot of people don't think about. They think it's remarkable, you know, when you've got five or six generations in your background of Christians that have passed on the faith. Here's 2,000 years with, yes, there were a few unbelievers in there, but for the most part, God's covenant succession grabbed these people generation after generation. Now, 
Some of David's story seems uh, like a series of random events until you start digging deeper. But as you start digging into the story of uh, David and First and Second Samuel, you begin to realize more and more the incredible providence of God and the redemptive uh, history that God was crafting there. And in this series, we're going to be looking at a lot of those little details. But I thought it'd be good when we start, uh, just get away from that, micro, uh, that microscope or that the magnifying glass, looking at all the bugs crawling on the bark, you know, and the cellular life of the, the tree, and back away from the branches and the leaves, and look at the forest as a whole. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to take kind of a bird's eye view uh, as uh, the eagle soaring over, looking at the forest and seeing the direction in which God was moving the line of David, his ancestors up to his time, and then all of the descendants up to the time of Jesus. And one of the reasons for it is we're going to be seeing that David very self-consciously saw himself as a pivot point in this preparation for the coming of the Messiah. Now, he was an anointed one. That's why a lot of Jews actually call him a Messiah. They call Hezekiah Messiah. It just means an anointed one. But he knew for sure he was not the ultimate anointed one. He was looking forward uh, to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the future and totally depending upon that coming Messiah for what he uh, would live. He was just a faint, faint picture or type of Jesus. But the main lesson I want to teach you today is the critical importance of covenant succession. How do we learn from the failures and the successes in this line of a covenant succession? First thing I want to establish is that God was very sovereign over this uh, family line and how it was all designed. And the, the theme of point number one, we're going to see all the way through the sermon, but I wanted to separate it out as a separate point because I think it's just marvelously displayed in verse 17. Look at uh, verse 17 of Matthew chapter 1. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 uh, generations. Now that's almost too neat for some people to find very believable. In fact, uh, there have been several liberals who have kind of attacked that passage and they saw the, the symmetry in there obviously makes it contrived. It couldn't possibly be that way. And of course, they've got a presupposition, same presupposition that makes them presuppose, because there's nothing about Einsteinian physics that says it has to be this way, but they presuppose the earth couldn't possibly be at the center of the universe or anywhere near the center, that smacks too much of design. And they don't believe God sovereignly is designing all of this universe in a given way. By the way, mathematically, works beautifully in terms of reconciling with the earth if you posit the earth at the center of the universe. But I won't get into that uh, this morning. That's not what this uh, sermon is about. When you study the genealogies and the chronology in Genesis chapter 5, you see Matthew was exactly right. Now, some people, even evangelicals, will bring up the objection, but Luke... Luke chapter 4 very clearly brings in another generation. Uh, the, uh, the guy's name is Canaan. Canaan. And uh, so there must be gaps in this genealogy, which means there must be gaps in the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. Uh, that's actually not the case. Uh, and if you want to talk to me afterwards uh, about it, uh, I, I, can, I even have a piece of paper that outlines uh, how that can be answered. 
one of the hints that you'll find in Luke is Luke makes it very, very clear he's not talking about begetting. He does not use the term begot like Matthew 1 does and like Genesis 5 does. He says the son of. And there's at least five credible explanations of how Canaan can be the son of... Um, who's the guy that's uh, right before... Um, all of a sudden it slipped uh, my slipped my brain. Um, hmm. Just completely uh, slipped my brain. Anyway, how he can be the son of that guy. <laughs> and um, how Canaan's son can also be the son of that guy. And uh, it beautifully reconciles, dovetails them all together where there is no missing gap. There's no gap in the chronology. There's no gap in the genealogy. And you do need to distinguish between the, the, the two of those things. But uh, I'm just going to take it for granted. You believe in the inspiration of Scripture. You're going to say, hey, Matthew said 14 generations and three sequences. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe that. But let me quote from William Hendrickson the significance of these numbers. He says, in Scripture, seven frequently indicates the totality ordained by God. Fourteen, which is twice seven, also brings out this idea. And I would add in here that fourteen is a double witness to perfection. But anyway, he goes on, he says, so it would seem, does three times fourteen equals forty-two? This is equal to six sevens and immediately introduces the seventh seven, reduplicated completeness and perfection. Now, Christ, of course, is the reduplicated completeness. He is the perfection. And so Luke chapter 4 has Jesus beginning his ministry on a Sabbath, on a Sabbath year, in the year of Jubilee, which is the year of liberty, you know, the release of all of those uh, slaves that, um, and many other forms of, of release as well. And William Hendrickson gives a lot of Scripture, and he gives... Let's see here, 24 pages of exposition of this verse just to show the intricacy of all of the details that God was working, working out in there. And when you dig into it, it really is marvelous. Each of these 14 generations is crisscrossed with sabbatic years where the land was supposed to lie fallow and crisscrossed with jubilee years. And, of course, the Sabbath was supposed to point to Christ. He was to be their rest, and even the land was to get rest. Even this very world is going to enter into redemption. And, of course, the jubilees were supposed to uh, point forward to Jesus. Now, here it mentions the exile uh, they were in exile for 70 years. Why? Because there were 490 years in which, prior to the exile, Israel failed to let the land lie Sabbath. And uh, 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 Daniel predicts another 490 years, a master jubilee, within which redemption would be accomplished. But backing up a, a little bit, there are 10 jubilee years from the time that David is born until the exile, that's 490 years there. And I'm not going to go into all of the symbolism, but the history that's involved in verse 17 represents an incredibly grand picture of, 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 how, uh, of, of the salvation that Jesus would accomplish as prophet, priest, and king. Now, in the middle section, that's the house of David as king, which is a lot of what about our series is going to be looking at. 
that house of David lasts for 490 years until the last king. And then there, and that's a master jubilee. And then there's another 490 years of very faithful descendants of David leading up to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's one of the things we're going to keep glorying in during this series is looking at God's redemptive purposes, how he writes this redemptive, uh, this redemptive story and he draws people into redemption. And we're going to be seeing that the gospel story is not just individual. Praise God, it's individual. And it's not just outward. He goes inward to the depths of our hearts. And it's not just inward. He he captures it corporately as well. He saves kings and he saves peasants. He saves nations. and, And his redemption covers every area of life. And we're going to be seeing a whole bunch of cool lessons in redemption. A second thing we're going to be looking at in this series is the amazing providence of God. Now, just think of the symbolism I've just gone through and all of the crisscrossing patterns that God had to very literally work out in history. That symmetry, you know, the the, the odds of that happening by chance are next to nothing, next to nil, right? God was at work, sovereignly working all of those Uh, things together for his glory. Every person in that genealogy was perfectly prepared by God to prepare for the coming Messiah. There could not be one less. There could not be one more. Everyone was needed. Everyone was counted for. Now, there was a lot of uh, chaos that we're going to be looking at a little bit today, chaos in that genealogy. But here's the, the neat thing. God's symmetry was designed to work in the midst of that chaos. You see, God's absolute predestinating plan, which covers all of the details that are out there, works in, around, and through the chaos of man's freedom in a way that brings the two together. And so you've got God's sovereignty, you've got human responsibility, but they're not irreconcilable things in God. He brings them together. He holds man responsible for his actions. We're going to be saying there's profound implications of that doctrine in this series on David that we're going to be looking at. Now let's look at another application of these 14s and all that they presuppose. For this verse to be true, God would have to be sovereign in what home you were born into, who your grandparents are, how you got conceived, all the genetics that went into that. I mean, just think of yourself and compare it to God's preparation of David. For you to be who you are, God had to control all of your ancestors stretching thousands of years back in time to make you specifically who you are today. Now, you might think, well, I wish God had made me different, you know, different genetics. I don't like the way that I have been made. Uh, But none of that is by chance, and we're going to be seeing some pretty colorful people that God uh, brings together. You know, the guy that they said looked like like a lion, and there's uh, some other strange guys out there that sometimes were rejected by man, but God used. They were absolutely essential for the establishing of his kingdom. And there are other lessons. Uh, God wouldn't let David build the temple, and there was a reason for it. 
he, in terms of the symbolism he was creating, he wanted a prince of peace to build that temple. David was a man of war. And David was absolutely critical to this symbolism as well, but David was preparing the way for that temple, and it was his son, Solomon, who would build the temple. Now, here's a little piece of trivia that you might be interested in. If you count from the time that the temple was dedicated all the way up till Jesus was born and circumcised, that was his dedication, and Jesus is the final temple. His body is the temple of the Spirit, okay? If you count from the dedication of that temple to the dedication of Christ's body, it's exactly 1,000 years. Coincidence? I think not. God is orchestrating all of these details in a marvelous way. And there's a lot of other indications of God's sovereignty that we won't go into. God is sovereign not only over the sun, moon, and stars and their courses, but over the actions of men. And he's not only sovereign over the big actions, you know, like wars and changes of politics. He is sovereign in who gets attracted to who and starts courting each other and gets married like yesterday happened. Uh, he is sovereign in conception, when it happens and how it happens and which genes, you know, go together with which other genes. God is sovereign in the details of life, and he's sovereign even over the difficult past that you had, maybe even in some cases the sordid past that you have had, just like he was sovereign over the difficult and sordid backgrounds that some of the people in this genealogy had. And let me tell you something, it's not until you receive the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ and you submit to his sovereignty that the lights go on, you say, wow, I can suddenly see the purpose for that apparently meaningless thing that happened in my life. Why did God allow that to happen? You say, okay, God was crafting me to be just the person I needed to be to serve his kingdom now. Uh, I think one of the best lessons I've ever gone through and somebody forced me to do it. Uh, I wouldn't have done it otherwise because a lot of it seemed like busy work. But was making a, a a timetable of my life from as far back as I could remember to the present, writing down every person, every event, whether it affected me negatively, whether it affected me positively, writing all of these divine appointments down, and and trying to analyze and see how was God using that in a Romans eight twenty eight way to craft me for who I was. It blew me away. Things I was bitter over, I now rejoiced over. It was a very, very helpful thing. And so hopefully, as we go through this series on David, there's going to be resolving of some of those kinds of issues in your life. There's many lessons we're going to see in David. Okay, point number two in your outline. Verse one, we're going to go through this verse by verse here. Verse one says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, and the, the word the Christ is just the Greek form of the Hebrew Messiah, of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I want you to notice that in some way, the whole book of Matthew is going to be an exposition of this genealogy because he calls it here the book of the genealogy of Jesus. Now, the very first verse here of this book would have caught the attention of a Jew. It would have hit them between the eyes. What? The Christ has come, the Messiah has come. We've been looking for him for a thousand years. How could we have missed him? And there were a lot of people in Israel who were skeptical that Jesus could possibly be the Messiah because they said, hey, if the Messiah has come, then why is Israel not over Rome? Why are we not ruling over the nations? 
Why don't we have wealth and power? And why don't we have all of these things that the rabbis say that we should have? And what Matthew does by the inspiration of the Spirit is he's crafting this genealogy in a way that makes the Jews realize God's purpose was not to save us from all of our uncomfortable circumstances. You know, that's the promise of politicians and political saviors, isn't it? Vote for me and there'll be a chicken in every pot. And I'll save you out of, uh, you know, the, the depression or the inflation or the deficit or I'll save you from terrorism. You vote for me and I will fix everything. That sells a whole lot better than what Jesus is promising. He's promising to save us from our sins and our irresponsibility. And he does not guarantee he's going to remove you from every difficult circumstance in your life. That's a hard sell for some people. They'd rather have a political Messiah who saves them from their difficulties, but he won't mess or touch with their hearts. You know, I want a Savior that won't mess around with my heart. You just leave me alone, but take away my bad circumstances. That's not the Messiah of this genealogy. The Messiah of Abraham was a Messiah who came to save him from his sinful actions, his sinful attitudes, his fears, his lying, all of the other things that had gripped his life. This was what the Messiah was about. It was not a Messiah to help us escape from our circumstances, but to triumph over them and to transform our circumstances. And so the bottom line of this point is that if you guys have embraced a hope from the world that is false... Repent of it. Throw it away and say, Lord, I want to embrace the hope of David. I want to embrace the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this series, we're going to be seeing what is the hope of David. Verses 1 through 6, this is point number 3. List the people who formed David. Now, verse 1 starts with Abraham, and the Jews were very proud of Abraham. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think we need to have far more connection with our past than we do. We're not covenantal enough in America. We are so impacted by the individualism of, uh, of American philosophy, we don't honor our ancestors like we, we should. We don't study our ancestors and try to learn from them and, and, and retain the heritage that they've passed along. <clears throat> But in Jewish culture back then, they had idolatrized Abraham. So there's a difference between honoring and idolatrizing. They had set him on a pedestal, almost treating him as if he's a person who couldn't sin. He sinned. He sinned. And uh, before he came to Christ, what was he? He's described as an idolater in Ur of the Chaldees. Now, yes, God saved him out of that, but in himself, Abraham had nothing of which to boast. That's why they called him a man of faith. He's looking to Jesus. That's where his focus is all the time. Jesus was the author and the finisher of his faith. But here is the point for our sermon today. Abraham starts the line of covenant succession. He's the first generation Christian so to speak, okay, before Christ came. He starts this line of covenant succession that's going to keep going and going and going. And I think you're going to find this covenant succession concept to be very, very encouraging for you. Verse 2 says, uh, Abraham begot Isaac. Now, yes, Isaac was a hero of the faith too, but he was not perfect. Uh, he was a coward who allowed his wife to go to a harem rather than face the risk of getting killed. Where did he get that from? He inherited it from his dad, right? In fact, he inherited some other sins from his dad, 
fear, manipulation, lying. You know, how would you wives like it if your husband just let some sleazy sheik, uh, you know, steal you away to his harem and he didn't do anything to protect you? I mean, this is what Abraham and Isaac both were guilty of. And so the Bible honors Abraham, honors Isaac as fathers, uh, but it does not put them on a pedestal. It makes them examples in our lives. And here is the one of the examples that he says. He says, watch out, guys. Because of the principle of covenant succession, you have a tendency to pass on to your kids not only good, but to pass on to your kids bad. Now, let's just take one example. Favoritism. Who was Abraham's favorite? You might think Isaac. If you read the text, it really wasn't. It was Ishmael. Oh, Lord, that Ishmael might live before you. Oh, that you might have your covenant with Ishmael. He wanted Ishmael to be favored. Who was the favorite for Isaac? It was Esau. It was not Isaac at all. He was receiving this, maybe even without thinking, uh, from his father. In his old age, if Isaac had gotten his way, Israel would never have been blessed by God. It would have been the hated Edomites that would have been blessed and would have dominated Israel, despite the fact Remember, he wanted to bless Esau rather than blessing Isaac, despite the fact that God had said, no, it's going to be through, excuse me, Jacob. It's going to be through Jacob. He, he failed to bless Jacob. It's going to be through Jacob that my seed will arise. And so Jacob got blessed, but it was no thanks to Isaac. It says, Isaac begot Jacob. Now, Jacob was a schemer and a liar. And again, where does he get that from? He gets it in part from his parents. Now, we're going to be seeing later on in this genealogy that God teaches some of the descendants to realize, hey, there are patterns here that we've been receiving from our parents, and we're stopping that right now. We are cutting off the ancestral sins that have been plaguing us for many a time. And I tell you, we've got to learn to do exactly the same thing, to put the sins of our ancestors under the blood of Christ, to cut off any legal ground that they may have given to Satan, and uh, to, to move forward, to get out of that rut that the generations tend to fall into. Well, apparently here, Jacob hasn't figured that out yet. Now, Jews would not have had a problem with his cheating Esau, but it was unthinkable for him to be cheating and lying to his father. That was low. It goes on, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Now, of all of the people in the line of Messiah, Judah was a very strange one. As a kid, I rooted for Joseph. So I'm reading through the story. I get, what? Judah's the one through whom the Messiah is going to come? That doesn't seem very fair. And uh, it, it especially frustrated me when God favored Leah despite the scheming of Laban and Leah together to deceive uh, Jacob. That really frustrated me. It spoiled a perfectly good story. <laughs> you remember the story. Jacob shows up at his uncle Laban's house, and he sees Rachel, and it's love at first sight. And he asks Laban, hey, can I marry your daughter? And he says, well, what kind of, uh, what kind of a dowry do you think you could give? Well, I don't have nothing. Do you think I could work for you? And so he ends up working as a slave for seven years. But it says his love for Rachel was so great that the seven years just seemed like nothing. And he gets to this wedding day, and he is so thrilled 
and uh, he's, he's, he's uh, radiant, and he's looking forward to this uh, wedding. He goes to the tent, where they always had a tent right on the wedding grounds to consummate the marriage, to sleep with Rachel, and his father-in-law had switched out Leah instead of Rachel. Now, don't tell me Leah was not part of this conspiracy. You know, she could have said, hey, Jacob, I have nothing to do with this. I'm not Rachel, and please don't hold it against me. My dad put me in here. Uh, she could have said something, and it made me mad as a kid that she didn't say anything. She spoiled the romance, the perfect romance. I wanted Rachel and, and, uh, and, and David, I mean, not David, Jacob, to get together. Well, he did end up marrying uh, uh, Rachel anyway, but a polygamist home is never a happy home. And because of the problems, the enormous problems that those two women had with each other and the way it messed up those 12 kids, at the time of Moses, God made it illegal for that ever to happen again. Now, it's always a sin. It's always been a sin. But he made it illegal for a, uh, a man to marry the sister of your wife before your wife has died. Okay, that, that became illegal for all time. Why? Because there were so many problems. Now, I bring that story up because... God can work and bring covenant succession in a good way despite our messed up problems, but don't ever overlook those problems because those problems are going to negatively affect your kids just like they negatively affected uh, Judah's, I mean Jacob's uh, kids. Now, if you think you had a tough home life, think of theirs. And if you think you have crummy in-laws, just think of how difficult it would have been to work with Laban. Laban was such a controller. Uh, He was such a deceiver. He changed his wages. He cheated Jacob over and over again. And it got so unbearable that Jacob and his uh, family fled, and uh, they didn't get far enough away to be able to escape. When Laban comes up, he's going to kill Jacob. And God warns him, don't you dare touch him. Don't even say anything negative to him. Well, he ignores what God says, and he says, look, those are my daughters, and everything you have belongs to me. I mean, he was a scoundrel to to work for. And it might have been very, very tempting for Jacob to say, you know, I wish, I wish that it had been different. I wish I'd married somebody different. Uh, It's a very easy thing for people to start uh, making making up new, new stories, and uh, we need to realize God is sovereign. We might wish we could have made the story so that Jacob made, married Rachel and they lived happily ever after, and we might fantasize, if only I had married somebody different, or if only I had a different parent, or if only this or that or the other thing had happened. And what I'm saying to you is get those thoughts out of your mind. Yeah, you've blown it in the past. Put it under the blood of Christ, and now what you need to do is stop fantasizing, and start saying to the Lord, Lord, I know I've blown it, but help me from here on in to make the best of covenant succession that I can. Help me to invest in my kids and my grandkids so that this covenant succession will not break. It'll go from generation to generation. Now let's go on. Jews could have overlooked the fact that Judah was willing to visit a Canaanite harlot, perhaps, and that he unknowingly committed incest in the process. But I think what would have seemed strange to those Jews is that he plotted to kill his own brother, Joseph. And then when the Midianites came along and said, hey, we can make a buck off of this. Instead of killing him, let's sell him. And they sold him into slavery. And uh, to put insult to injury, 
in their mind, when you're counting genealogies, he married a Canaanite. Uh, Canaanites were condemned to destruction later on. It just seemed like an odd thing. So there's Judah. Judah has inherited many, many good traits, but he picked up some bad traits. In fact, he picked up some bad traits his family had not had before. Where did he get those bad traits? He got them from his mom. Okay? And so we've got to be thinking in our minds when we're marrying off our kids, what kind of impact will the potential new spouse bring to covenant succession? Will it help it? Will it hinder it? We need to be praying about these things. We need to be working on them. Evaluating marriage is very important. Now Matthew goes on. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now this is, a, for a Jew anyway, an embarrassing little piece of history. Not only is the Messiah a son of idolaters, adulterers, a man guilty of attempted fratricide, he was the son of an incestuous relationship. You see, Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. What a mess. <laughs> what an absolute mess we see in some of this early genealogy. And yet, what is God in the business of? He's bringing beauty out of ashes, isn't he? And he's restoring people out of their messes. The next set of names represent people who were born in the Egyptian captivity. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Now, these were generations that Joshua describes as having been caught in idolatry to the point where eventually they become total idolaters, total unbelievers. And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. You can have in your family covenant succession that's building generation upon generation where you're handing on an inheritance and it be lost overnight. You see, by the time of Perez, there was quite a bit of inheritance that had been passed on that was good. It was lost overnight. And it can happen so easily to any one of us. We've got to be on guard with our hearts and how we pass on the faith. Now, Aminadab's an interesting guy here. He was initially a total unbeliever, worshiping false gods. And you might think, okay, so much for covenant succession. There goes the whole family line. And yet God saved him out of Egypt and shows that his mercy uh, is present even when we blow it. So here's something I want you to consider. I know some of you are discouraged because you don't have a long line of covenant succession like we've had in our family. On my mom's side, we can trace back godly Christians going all the way back to the 1060s A.D. My dad's side, not quite as far. And some people have said, I wish I had that. Let me tell you something. You may be a first-generation Christian... But you ought to do a little investigation in your past to see what churches your great-grandfather belonged to or your great-great-grandfather. It may be they believed in covenant succession and they were praying for their descendants, Lord, do not allow our line to pass away in terms of the Christian faith. You see, covenant succession has a power to even jump over generations and still continue on. And we're going to be seeing some examples of that uh, in here. Praise God for your ancestors, even if you have unbelieving parents. Praise God for covenant succession. Now, back to Aminadab. Unfortunately, yes, he gets saved out of Egypt, but he brings with him some of the thinking of Egypt. He did not have antithesis. Antithesis means you have a clear-cut division between yes and no, between right and wrong. 
uh, between truth and error. He was all fuzzy in his thinking because he was not rejecting the thinking of Egypt. He was bringing it right into the church like so many in the church have done today. And it was disastrous in what was happening in his life. Here's what happened. He began to think, you know, Moses is being such a nitpicker, such a legalist. Why can't we have a little bit of this, you know, idols and still worship Jehovah? These things bring us good luck. And he he was uh, thinking in terms of a little bit of syncretism. Now, he may have been a true believer, but he was one of the ones who longed for the leeks and garlics of Egypt. He wished he could go back. At least there, you knew you were going to still be alive tomorrow and be able to eat good food. Here, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. There's risks to liberty. And so God judged him. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and he died. And it's stories like this and this genealogy that make me pray for my children every day. I do not want my children or my grandchildren losing the inheritance of covenant succession. My dad prayed for us every day that I ever remember. Lord, keep my children from this fate. Help them to move forward because if you're not moving forward, you're going to be moving backward. Here's the problem. Covenant children takes too many things for granted. Uh, You know, you've grown up in a Christian home and... uh, you, you see a lot of these things that have been handed on. You think, well, that's a little bit uncomfortable. Why don't you, I just set it aside. And you don't see many times when you're a young person, 10 moves ahead. You know what I'm talking about in chess. Some people can see 10 moves ahead. And they see you moving a piece and they say, oh, I can't believe he made that move. He's lost the game already right now. You don't see it. You only see one move ahead and it seems more comfortable. Okay. And what you need to do, young people, is you need to trust your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents a lot more. you got to say, God has given them the ability to see a little bit further in advance than I have been able to see. Okay, the next two names represent great men of faith who have no tarnish to their names, at least that I know of. Aminadab begat Nashon, Nashon begat Solomon. Nashon was a man who was passionate for God. He was passionate for conquest. He he was one of the guys that was taking on the land of Canaan. He he was willing to lay down his life for Christ. He was willing to just be out and out for the Lord. And this is encouraging for me. It is not a foregone conclusion that you have to have a tarnished reputation. You know, we look at some of these saints, and some of you already have some tarnished reputations. That's okay. We can look to saints that say they've been cleansed, and we can move on from there. But you kids and others who have not already been there... You can go through life without a tarnished reputation. God wants you to be like these men, and He wants you to be like the men in the last set of 14 generations who were faithful, who did not have tarnished reputations. That's where God wants you uh, to be. Okay, he goes on. Uh, Nothing wrong with the next name, even though some Jews would have cringed at another Canaanite in the family tree of Messiah, but it says, Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab. Remember the story of Rahab? She was a former temple prostitute who got saved and who hid the spies and, in effect, delivered Jericho into the hands of the Israelites. And so Solomon married a Canaanite temple prostitute, but the Scripture portrays that as a good thing. Why? Because she is saved, she's redeemed, she's cleansed from her past, and it shows the marvelous grace and the power of restoration that God has. 
Now, it seems as if Matthew is just continuing to undermine the prideful arrogance of the Jews because they're so proud of their outward pedigree, they fail to look at the heart. And I think any uninspired Jew who wrote this genealogy would have left out the names of these pagan women. Matthew, by inspiration, he doesn't do that. He says, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. And of course, you remember the story of Ruth. Josephus gives us a little background history on Ruth. She, according to him, was the daughter of Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a hated king, a despicable king, a ruthless king. And when Ehud, the judge, came up to deliver his tribute, and he had the swords under his garment, and nobody's looking, he pulls that out and stabs uh, Eglon in the stomach. Everybody cheers because this guy's out of the picture. And nobody probably would have even thought of God's grace redeeming one of that wicked man's children. Yet that's exactly what he does. He redeems Ruth to himself. Now it starts first with an unlawful marriage. Chilean... Uh, marries Ruth, and uh, that would have been a mixed marriage. He should not have negotiated for that marriage. He dies childless, and Ruth um, is uh, childless, and she's a widow. But by God's grace, Ruth is soundly converted to the true God of Israel. And if you've never read the book of Ruth, you've got to. You've got to read it. It's just an incredibly fun story. Now, what these names demonstrate is that Christ identified with sinners He took them to himself, he changed them, and he purified them. But what they also demonstrate is you can never assume that you won't fall. You can never assume that your kids won't fall. The only way you can perpetuate covenant succession is by clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way you're going to be able to do it. The first set of 14 is a testimony of the fact Abraham... In Abraham, it's not just Jews who are going to get saved, but all the families of the earth will be blessed. Because you see all of these, these different pagans that come. And this next one is, is to the point as well. It says, Obed begot Jesse. Now, Jesse was a good man. He was standing on his parents' shoulders. He wasn't great in the eyes of the world. In fact, commentaries point out that when Saul says, David, the son of Jesse, it's a term of scorn. He wasn't a total peasant, but he was a person who was probably lower middle class. He certainly was not from the nobility, not somebody that Saul uh, would, would hang around with. And yet God identifies himself with the humble. Uh, Jesse begot David the king. You already know about him. Wonderful guy, right? He's a man after God's own heart. But he wasn't perfect any more than any of us are. And verse 6 goes on to say, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Ouch. <laughs> You know, why does God have to bring up all of these things? He's reminding people that David was a murderer and that he was an adulterer. Why does God do that? Well, he's trying to show to us God was a friend of sinners. He redeemed sinners. He changes sinners. And even when we backslide, God can make something new out of it. He identifies himself with Hittites. The Hittites were condemned to destruction, were they not, in the conquest? Yet here is a converted Hittite, Uriah the Hittite and his wife. What a marvelous testimony to God's love. And so that's the heritage of David, and it's an incredible list. There are heroes of the faith. There are sinners. There are some really rotten sinners. And uh, there was a lot of good that was passed on. There was a lot of sin that was passed on. 
We see reversals. We see restorations. We see God is able to capture the worst of sinners. It captured an idolater, a kidnapper, a coward, a deceiver, a whore, an incestuous relationship, two Canaanites, a Moabitess, an adulterer, and a murderer. How would you like to have that in your family tree? You know? Uh, now, the interesting thing about how he crafts this is the guys who are pretty decent guys, and there's nothing bad to mention about it, he just mentions their name. The guys who would have been making the Jews cringe a little bit, he highlights <laughs> their names, you know. Okay, this, this is the guy that I want you to be studying, uh, studying his history a little bit. And Matthew, by inspiration, does that again to show Jesus was a friend of publicans and sinners. That was his whole purpose, to die not for the righteous, but for sinners, and to turn them into the righteous. And so David, this is the, all of these were preparing for the time of David so that David would trust in the coming Messiah alone, by grace alone, by faith alone. When he heard these stories from the past, and I'm sure David heard those stories over and over again, what they did is to make him not be trusting in his own self-righteousness, to be saying, Lord, there but for the grace of God I will be. Lord, I trust in your coming Messiah. Now, when we get to the house of David... We find David to be a man after God's own heart. We've already mentioned, not perfect. But when he fell down, he always repented, almost always repented right away. Sometimes it took a while, but he'd repent. He'd get up. He'd walk by grace again. And if you want to be men and women after God's own heart, do it just like David did. And let me tell you something. If you hate sin as much as David hated sin, and you love his grace as much as he loved his grace, and you love righteousness like he did, God will powerfully use you. It's guaranteed He will use you. Now, of course, Solomon's mentioned here as well. Uh, he starts off pretty good. Then he backslides because of all of these pagan wives that he has brought in. He repents toward the end of his life, and he ends, you know, somewhat good. But it shows God, again, can restore us. But it says here in verse 7, Solomon begot Rehoboam. It was under Rehoboam that the kingdom was split into two. And I think it was to teach us for all time that you cannot bring in the kingdom in your own efforts. You cannot do it in your own efforts. You've got to have the gospel of Jesus Christ. More, uh, less than half, less than half of the kings that are mentioned here are good kings. More than half of the kings that are mentioned here are evil kings are bad kings. Well, let me tell you a little secret about the good kings. Every one of these good kings had a good mother or a good wife, and usually both. Every one of the evil kings had an evil mother or an evil wife, almost always both. The power of you women to influence men for good or for evil is way, way untold. It is huge. And the point here is that if we're going to be successful in covenant succession, we have got to make sure that we marry our kids in the Lord, that there, there is a unity in Christ. In fact, it says in Malachi, you know, when he says, don't divorce the youth of your wife, he says, God made them spiritually one. Why did he make that spiritual unity absolutely prerequisite to marriage? He says, because he seeks godly offspring. That's covenant succession. 
That's what God wants in your lives. Godly offspring, generation after generation after generation. But you cannot take this whole issue of marriage. Uh, You've you got to take it seriously. You cannot uh, put it uh, just under the, under the carpet. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to count on your fingers. See if you can count the number of good kings in this list as I read them. Okay, it says, Rehoboam begot Abijah. Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram. Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz. Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon. Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. If you counted five kings as being good, you're correct. Eight kings were bad kings, evil kings. As I mentioned, every one of them, every one of them, uh, the, the power of women in their lives. So here's my application. Don't take marriages to covenant people for granted. Many covenant people abandoned the faith. Many of these bad kings were covenant people who had not sanctified themselves in the small areas of life, and they ended up being compromised in the big things. In fact, some of these covenant people, they were generally good, but they did not take down the high places. And what happened when they gave Satan that legal ground? It gave Satan an advantage to work in their families, and it messed up their children. Their children became that much worse. So the the marriage lesson, I think, is clear. Just because a person professes to be a Christian does not make him marriage material. You young men and women who are single, I would advise you, pray every day for your future spouse. You don't know who they are, but pray that God would change their hearts, work in them, protect them from falling into evil. God would sanctify them and make them ready to be engaged in covenant succession. And you need to take these years before you are married to do everything you can to make yourself engaged in covenant succession. You've got to read worldview and be prepared to give answers to biblical questions. You've got to, you, you've got to be doing due diligence. And by the way, you parents are absolutely critical. You cannot read the Old or the New Testaments without realizing the parents have a huge role in courtship. And if you don't, you're making a big mistake because you're the objective factor who can help them to think through issues. It's so easy for us to get emotionally involved, give away our hearts and say, well, yeah, there's some issues, but those will clear up. <laughs> don't believe it. They, 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 they don't automatically clear up. Now, if the person has a heart after God, they are quick to repent. Yes, their sins will clear up. We're not talking about perfection here, but we're talking about a person who has a heart like David, who's willing to quickly confess and give up. But... Um, Wow, this is a huge, huge area. Jonathan Edwards uh, was once asked by a godly young man if he could court Jonathan Edwards' daughter. And he said, no. And he said, why, am I not godly enough for your daughter? And he said, no, you're godly enough. My daughter is not godly enough for you. And uh, what he was pointing out is I still need to work in discipling my daughter's heart. Why is it that somehow this pagan concept of a high school graduation you don't find that anywhere in the Bible means we're no longer obligated to disciple our children after they've graduated. 
your discipleship of your daughters continues until they get married. Even if your daughters are 30, just like you wash your wife with the water of the Word, you need to be washing your daughter with the water of the Word. Okay, and and uh, you you <laughs> once they're married, they're going to just it's going to be continual discipleship. You men need to continue to continually to be discipled, right? That's why you got elders, and that's why you got other brothers and sisters to challenge each other in the Lord. But our whole lives, we need to be discipled. So back to our sections of fourteen. First section had sinners, yes, but they were sinners for the most part. When they fell down, they mourned over their sin like David did. They hungered after the Lord. They got up. They went on again. The difference between the first section and the second section is that many, several of the people, but eight of the people in the second section just didn't care. Manasseh was perhaps the worst. If I, if I was Manasseh's son, I'll tell you what, I would not let my kids go over to Grandpa's house and hang out with Grandpa because the influence of that man was astonishingly bad. The demonic influence, the moral influence, that's how bad Manasseh was. But here's the cool thing. When he got sent into exile, God converted him, switched him around, and turned him into a godly man. Same thing happened with Jeconiah, where he almost became like a new man uh, after, after God's uh, conversion. And so that gives me hope for biblical change in our country, despite the fact that in Washington, D.C., we have more Manassehs than we have Davids. It gives me hope. Now, let's end by looking at the exile and beyond, and we won't spend a lot of time on this. But the exile itself was a discipline upon God's people to bring them to righteousness. And our nation and the church in our nation may face many of the same kinds of judgments and disciplines uh, to turn the church around. And yet God was always faithful to His promise to David. And if we claim those promises, He can be faithful to us as well. Verse 12 And after they were brought back to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Now, Jeconiah was counted once in verse 11, again in verse 12, because of how radically different his life had become, almost like a new man. Uh, He was banished from the throne. He was cast into prison in Babylon. While there, he gets converted. God raises him and exalts him above all of the other kings that are in Babylon. And Jeremiah 52 talks about that. Now, this is the beginning of an upswing in the line of David. In fact, this part of the genealogy is the most encouraging part of the genealogy for me. These men had finally learned the lesson of covenant succession. Covenant succession is faithfully passing on the faith from generation to generation to the next and the next and the next without any stop. It's not enough to be a good guy like David and then lose your family. Okay, the men in this section of the genealogy learned from their ancestors you cannot take your children for granted. They learned about what a mess you get when you have multiple wives. They learned about how important it is to take care of your household before you start trying to fix the culture. Okay? They learned how important it is to catch the hearts of the children before they grow up. They learned the power of God's grace to make generation after generation godly. David wanted that for his kids, but you know where he messed up? He failed to discipline his kids. He failed to disciple his kids. Fathers, discipleship is probably the most important thing you can do with your children. Probably the most important thing you can do. So back to this uh, story here. These men start a long line of men who are true to God 
and who take the pursuit of righteousness seriously. Covenant succession can happen. Jonathan Edwards uh, is just one of several families that you could study, and you will see a long line where every generation, the people, just they love the Lord. They're following after the Lord, and the Lord is powerfully using them in all kinds of levels of uh, uh, government and education and other areas to promote the kingdom of Christ. Study the line of Jonathan Edwards sometime. I think you'll find it very very encouraging. Now, I just want to look at a couple names here. Zerubbabel is described as being as close to God as a signet ring. Boy, wouldn't you love that to be in, you know, God's description of you? You're as close to me as a signet ring. And so the beginning of the line starts with righteousness during troubled times. The line ends with Joseph, who was a righteous man in troubled times. And in both of those cases, you can see that God's praise is not because of how many things you accomplish. God's praise comes because you're faithful to Him. You just leave the results up to God because of faithfulness. Okay, they were not trying to, as our ultimate goal, win elections. Sure, we love to win elections. That was not their ultimate goal. Their ultimate goal was to be faithful to God and leave the results in His hands. And I think this is a lesson to us as well. It does not matter if you are unknown and insignificant like the carpenter Joseph. It doesn't matter whether you live in peaceful times like Zerubbabel did or warfare times like the Maccabees. What matters is, are you faithful to God in the small and the big things and are you willing to pass on the faith uh, to your children? There is no reason why your children cannot stand on your shoulders and go beyond where you've been able to go. If you will empower them, give them tools, Teach them to avoid the mistakes you made. That, that, that assumes you got the humility to admit you've made mistakes, right? Teach them to avoid those mistakes. Disciple them. And, uh, disciple them to how to think in, biblically in every area of life. Cause them to read books, books on worldview, books on every area. Okay, give them a heritage. Help them to keep out of debt. They have a full orb picture of what the covenant is all about. Teach them about covenant succession. Now, in conclusion, let me say, uh, just summarize with those pictures that are on your, your outline there. If we can have the faith of Abraham, that top picture, and we can have the heart for God and the passion for God that David had, and we can have the antithesis, the hatred for evil that Zerubbabel had, and we can have the humility that Joseph had, you're going to have a Christianity that will be envied. You'll have a Christianity to be envied. And I hope that this big picture view is going to help you to see why it is that God rejected Saul from being king and he looked for another king and what it was he was looking in for that other king. That's where we're going to begin next week, Lord willing. But let's pray. Father, we thank you for this long line of people that show the power of covenant succession. We desire that for our children, and we pray that you would grant it for our children, that not one of our little ones would be lost. Father, that every one would be presented mature in Christ Jesus. Father, there are some here who aspire to go into politics, and we see from that whole line of kings that if we go into politics without your protection, without... Uh, uh, learning how to engage demonic hosts who come against us. If we go into politics without learning uh, daily to ask you to reveal our sins and to put them under the blood of Christ quickly, 
we're going to quickly fall uh, by the wayside as so many politicians have done. Uh, Father, there are young people growing up here who want to get married. And we've seen in this genealogy from so many of these marriages that uh, uh, the weak link can many times take us down. But I pray, Father, that you would prepare and strengthen each one here to be prepared to move forward every time they sin and every time they stumble to have the heart of David to repent and to seek the blood of Christ to cleanse them. Make us to be a people, Father, prepared to pass on covenant succession, not to be discouraged from the past, but to look for the future and what you can accomplish through us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.